Well, thank you, Ruth Ann, and uh, thank you, Asbury community, for inviting me here to speak yesterday and uh, this morning. It's a great privilege. In <clears throat> my long career, I've never been to Asbury before, but of course, know many of the faculty, and so it's great to see the, the place in, in, in reality. It's a wonderful community, a wonderful campus. Again, thank you for inviting me, and I'm pleased to share with you this morning from Revelation 19, where we encounter what we might call the last table, the last table. And through scripture, uh, God invites us to various tables. Or another way to think about it is that God presents himself as our host who provides for us. And of course, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, verses 29 to 31, where after creating human beings, God provides food for them. Then, and this is just hitting a few high spots here, then we could go to Exodus 24, 1 to 11, where after entering into a covenant, after Moses descends from Mount Sinai, uh, they saw God and they ate and drank. Uh, or in uh, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10, there's a historical rehearsal of the provision of God in the wilderness. Uh, Yesterday, when we were talking about woman wisdom, we saw this picture of God uh, personified as woman wisdom, inviting everyone to her table. Um, and, and then, of course, Luke 22, 14 to 20, we might think of the Lord's Supper as the table, and, and more and more. Uh, and here we come to the last table, the invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, um, this, of course, speaking as a biblical scholar, is a biblical theological theme, and it, as I said, presents God as a host, the one who provides for us, but also this invitation is more than an invitation just to eat food. It's an invitation to growing intimacy with God. As I said yesterday, when somebody invites you over for a meal, uh, the doctoral students, the graduate students are inviting me to lunch <clears throat> afterwards, and that's an invitation to deeper relationship, getting to know people and, and, uh, and, and becoming more intimate with them. You know, Scripture is filled with these metaphors, these powerful metaphors of God. Uh, he is our king. He is our warrior. He is our uh, husband. He is our shepherd, and on and on and on. And these powerful metaphors speak to different aspects of who God is. And notice how they're all relational metaphors. They're not kind of when scripture speaks about God, it's not in the abstract. It's in vivid metaphorical terms that tell us about our relationship with him. And as I say, this one emphasizes not only the fact that God is our provider, but also something about his desire for intimacy with him. Now we're gonna turn to this last table, the wedding supper of the lamb, found at the end of the book of Revelation, 
Our passage is actually the invitation to that supper, so we're going to set it in context, moving backwards first in the book of Revelation, then moving forward to the actual wedding supper itself. But before we do, a couple words to orient ourselves to the book of Revelation. And I, of course, am in front of esteemed New Testament scholars, and I do this with a little trepidation, but I have been working with Revelation for a while. Uh, The book of Revelation can be, as you know, difficult and confusing to modern 21st century readers, particularly those of us who come from a Western culture. The book was written by John toward the end of the first century, most likely, I think, around 90 AD, making it the last book of the Bible written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. While written in a Roman context, the book is chock full of Old Testament um, allusions. And it's because of our lack, and I'm speaking generally, Christian lack of familiarity with the Old Testament, and even more with the ancient Near Eastern background that lies behind it, uh, and also because of our lack of understanding of apocalyptic literature, we often get lost in in reading this book. And, And sometimes people exploit that difficulty by reading all kinds of fanciful ideas into the book whether it's the late great planet Earth, the Left Behind series, or any number of end time scenarios, the book, to be honest, has been abused time and time again in an attempt to get information out of it that it doesn't intend to give us, like giving us information that might lead us to know or hint at when Christ is coming. Again, that's That's not what the book has been about. It's also been used, unfortunately, and and recently in our American culture to encourage Christians toward a kind of culture war that involves coercion and even occasionally violence, which the book of Revelation, as we will see, would never endorse. Now, don't get me wrong. The book of Revelation does talk about the future. It does talk about the end of time, and of course, the second coming of Christ, which we're all longing for. But the book is actually being addressed to John's present, to the community of Christians who are living in 90 AD. And not only that, it's being addressed to Christian generations in their present, including ours, um, and the message that it's sending is consistent. The book of Revelation was written to the church through the ages to remind us that we live, every one of us, no matter what culture we live in, uh, we live in a culture that is toxic to our faith. And it's calling us not again to culture war, but to patient perseverance in the midst of marginalization and even persecution. It's not calling us to take over the culture, and it's, uh, it's telling us to remain faithful in spite of the trouble that we face in life. 
It's telling us, in short, that though it looks like evil is in control, and doesn't it look like evil's in control? Uh, God is really in control. Books of, like Daniel and Revelation, what they do is they, they push aside the curtains and let you see behind and behind what's going on to tell you evil's not in control, God is in control, and Jesus will have the final victory. And not through our own efforts, but because of God's intervention. Well, how does our passage fit into that message? Again, let me read the part uh, that I'm focusing on. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the <clears throat> roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. One more kind of introductory comment about the book of Revelation, and that has to do with its structure, which is often confusing to us. As you read through it, don't you get the feeling that there's this end-time battle about every two chapters? Um, it's a little bit disconcerting. It seems to go round and round. This is not the place to go into the detail, but that impression is exactly correct. Uh, the bottom line is that Revelation is recapitulating throughout the book uh, you know, moving up to the end time intrusion of God into our world, taking us further and further each time. And we're entering into the final cycle here. But for our purposes, we need to go back a few chapters before we go forward to better understand this wedding that we've been invited to. Why are we being invited? What is this wedding celebrating? The invitation comes after the condemnation of, quote, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. God has avenged on her the blood of his servants, 19.2. And that victory is recounted in Revelation 17 and 18. At the beginning of chapter 17, an angel shows John the great prostitute who's riding the beast that has seven heads and ten crowns. Of course, notice how the prostitute contrasts with the bride, implied by the wedding mentioned in our passage, and informing both the picture of the prostitute as well as the bride is the Old Testament picture of our relationship with God being like a marriage. So here we have another very vibrant metaphor of our relationship with God. The Old in the Old Testament, God is the husband and the faithful people, uh, uh, his faithful people are the bride, the wife. The prophet Jeremiah reports, for instance, that at a time when Israel was unfaithful, that God looked back on the day when the relationship was a healthy one. This is Jeremiah 2.2. 2. 
I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. Of course, this marriage metaphor emphasizes God's intimate love to us and how he calls us to an exclusive relationship with him. There can be no other husband. There can be no other God. And a relationship that's filled with affection and compassion. Now, unfortunately, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2 and Hosea 2.14 is another example is a rather rare example of the marriage metaphor being used in a positive way in the Old Testament. Most often, it comes across negatively and throughout the Old Testament. Rather than an intimate, exclusive relationship with God, God's people opted to worship false gods, thus prostituting themselves. And of course, you know those powerful passages in Hosea 1 and Ezekiel 16, and 23, that picture God's relationship with Israel as a marriage gone horribly, horribly wrong. Well, it's this Old Testament background that stands behind the picture of the great prostitute. Who is the great prostitute? What does this figure stand for? Well, the first answer from the text itself is Babylon the Great. But of course, by the time of Revelation 17, Babylon hasn't existed for about 600 years. The woman's character and identity is further revealed as she's described as riding on a, quote, scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. Here we go back to Revelation 12, where we're first introduced to the beast and are told that this beast is none other than, quote, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So this picture of the prostitute, Babylon the Great, is riding on a beast that symbolizes Satan. This imagery, as many of you know, uh, comes from Daniel chapter 7, which pictures evil, evil human kingdoms in the form of horrific beasts that arise out of a chaotic sea. But now going on, I want to draw your attention to 17.9, where the angel tells John, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. And of course, the contemporary audience would immediately recognize that this is an allusion to the city of Rome, built on seven hills. Babylon the Great represents Rome. And I would suggest that Rome represents all evil worldly powers. And it looks, it looks an awful lot like those evil worldly powers are going to win. But again, the message of Revelation is that they don't win at the end. Rather, Babylon the Great will fall, and God's faithful people will celebrate and be invited into the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, turning back to our passage, which issues the invitation to the wedding supper, we ask, who is the groom? Well, of course, it's the Lamb. Already by the time of Revelation, New Testament authors have taken the Old Testament picture of God's relationship with his people as a marriage and applied it to Christ. 
And we can see this particularly in a passage like Ephesians 5. Jesus is the lamb who looks as if he was slain, reminding us that our relationship with him is purchased by his blood. We're first introduced to Jesus as the lamb in Revelation 5, as the one who's worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll. In other words, he's the one who wins the victory over the forces of human and spiritual evil. How? How does he win that victory? Not by killing, but by dying on the cross. He thus provides a model for how we should live faithfully today. Not by coercion, and certainly not by force, but by faithful, self-sacrificial living that could even result in our deaths. Yes, it's true that Paul talks about the Christian life using warfare imagery. That's a theme I've studied since the very beginning of my career, going back to 1980s, before anybody was really interested in the God is a warrior image. But notice in Ephesians 6 that warfare is not directed toward flesh and blood enemies. Paul says that directly. Your battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and authority. And these enemies are fought not by physical weapons of any sort, but by spiritual weapons like truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, salvation, the spirit, which is the word of God in prayer. Those are our weapons in the present day. And this, to me, sounds like a prescription for what people today are calling culture care and urging us as we think about our life in society not to think in terms of the metaphor of warfare but think in terms of the metaphor of care recent voices like makoto fujimura mark laberton the president of fuller peter Weiner wisely suggest, in my opinion, the metaphor of culture care. Culture care takes into account that all people, no matter their religion or lack thereof, are creatures created in the image of God. And therefore, they reflect God's glory and deserve our respect and to be treated with dignity. Of course, the Bible is clear that all God's creatures, Christians included, are sinners seeking advantage to oneself, but still that doesn't eradicate humanity's image-bearing status. Since humans are also sinners, we will have our differences and conflicts. Still, if the war metaphor is not primary in our mind, it encourages us to move, if the, if the war metaphor is primary in our mind, it encourages us too quickly to conflict and coercion. If we rather approach others with care in mind, we'll be encouraged to move toward those different than we are with love, a love that will challenge, will try to persuade, will present the gospel to them, but do it in a winsome way. Now, don't get me wrong, this, is, this 
will often lead to Christians being marginalized and humiliated. This will lead to Christians being put in difficult situations. But as we reflect on our Lord's life, what else should we expect? I mean, a lot of what you see in, at least in public these days, are Christians who are tired of being humiliated, tired of being demeaned, tired of being, you know, persecuted, tired of being marginalized. And again, my response is, what do you expect? Look at Jesus. He loved those who humiliated him, and so should we. In the book of Revelation is there to give us uh, the encouragement to live with confidence in the present and hope for the future in spite of this situation. And it does that in part by pointing out our reward in terms that our suffering service will lead to, which is the wedding supper, the great celebration. This is the final meal. But again, in the book of Revelation, our verses are not the meal itself, but just the invitation to the meal. And before we get to the meal, there is this picture of the final judgment. Again, probably again, in terms of this recapitulation uh, perspective on the book of Revelation, it is the most extensive picture of that final judgment beginning with what I consider the most gruesome picture in all the Bible, Revelation 19, 11 and following, uh, which I often will point out to people who say to me, I don't like the Old Testament because it's so violent. Uh, I say, have you read Revelation 19, 11 and following? Um, and then they say, I don't like the book of Revelation. So there was an ancient heretic who followed that pattern that we need to resist. Uh, because even though we want to love and try to persuade and win people to Christ today, there will come a moment of reckoning for those who continue to resist Christ. And that moment of reckoning is pictured as a, a final battle where, where Jesus is riding a white horse into battle, leading his heavenly army, not a human army, uh, against the forces of the dragon who represents the serpent and his two beastly associates. And so um, Revelation 19 ends with, come, gather together for the great supper of God. I guess this is another type of table, uh, of, of one to contrast with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then follows a litany of judgments, first against those two beasts, the one from the sea and one from the land, also called the false prophet, who both stand for worldly power, then followed by the dragon himself in 21 to 10, and then finally those who decide for and worked for these powers of evil in 2011 to 15. It is after these final 
recountings of the ultimate defeat of evil that the wedding supper to which we have invited finally takes place. And this is uh, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What a wonderful picture of our future. As we dwell on that again, we see that God will have the final victory so we can live with confidence today. So to summarize from this passage, what do we learn from this final table? Well, the first is, the present is not our future. Everyone's life is full of hardship today. But we must remain faithful and persevere in our faith in spite of our hardship. In the meantime, the bride, namely the church in 1907, has made herself ready. Well, how do we do that? Well, I suggest it's living with faith, prayer, praise, and testimony, doing good deeds. And it's interesting to read through the book of Revelation to see what an emphasis there is on doing good deeds. Um, engaging in culture care, I would suggest, is part of that doing good deeds. It means living with faith and it, living with faith means we don't act, we don't act as if things are out of control and that we have to bring things under control. We live knowing that God is in control and will have the final victory. Living with faith also means that we don't put our trust in false gods, but rather in God himself. And of course, through the letters, to the churches in Revelation, that is a persistent theme. You know, don't engage in the worship of the culture. Well, what's the worship of our culture today? Well, there are many of them, but I'll just name uh, four. Money. Political power. Prestige. Finally, again, we should not live as those who are comfortable in this world, but as those who yearn for the return of Christ when he will set everything right. Notice how the book ends by once again mentioning the bride of Christ, 22 verse 17. And I want this verse to be our prayer this morning. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes 
take the free gift of the water of life. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, come. We sometimes grow too comfortable in this life, and we want you to delay. Uh, but as we think about it, as we experience hardship, we ask that you come. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to persist, to be faithful, uh, to not respond with fear and anxiety, but with trust, knowing that you are in control. And also, Lord, let us take advantage of this time by doing good deeds, by caring for others, by sharing the gospel with them, by inviting them into the kingdom of God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.